0: Well, we are in Luke chapter 22. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 23 this morning. 1 through 23. I'll go ahead and read you, follow along. Luke 22. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was one of the number... Uh, Of the 12, he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray Jesus to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, prepare it there, and they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When the hour come, or when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it again, or I will not eat it, in remembrance of me, and likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you, this, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes, I'm sorry, For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they begin to question one another, which of them it could be who is going to do this. Uh, Thus far, God's word. The Old Testament is filled with uh, pointers. Uh, People and places and things that point ahead, that point forward, that point to the future. So take, for instance, the promised land. Uh, It was given by God to his people as a safe dwelling place. And when we look back, we understand that place to be Canaan. But when we look ahead, we know that Canaan pointed to the day when the entire earth, would be that safe dwelling place. Since the people of God shall someday inherit the earth and it will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Matthew chapter five, Habakkuk chapter two. Or consider the temple which was given by God to his people as a holy meeting place. Place to meet with God, a place to worship God, Uh, Looking back, we know that the portable temple in the desert and the permanent temple there in Jerusalem were such meeting places, but looking ahead, we understand that they pointed to a time when God himself would be our meeting place. In fact, it is that this morning. Uh, Yes, we're meeting in this room, but more than that, we're meeting in Christ. And we're told that on the last day, there will be no temple in the New Jerusalem because Revelation 21 tells us that the temple will be the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. This morning, we're going to consider another one of these pointers, the Passover. Uh, Passover meal given by God to his people as a sign of salvation. Now looking back, the Passover meal uh, signaled the, the, the salvation of God's people from slavery in Egypt, right? And then every year it was observed after that, Passover served as a reminder of that great saving act. But looking forward, Um, we understand that the Passover meal pointed to the salvation of God's people from sin. A salvation that was secured by the fulfillment of the Passover meal in time, and we'll see that this morning, as well as a salvation to be celebrated with a sumptuous meal at the end of time, Revelation 19, seven through nine. So this morning we're going to consider the symbolism of the Passover meal before uh, uh, Jesus and his disciples, set there before Jesus and his disciples, an occasion that we refer to as the Last Supper. And here's what we're going to see surrounding this event. We're gonna see the religious leaders who are focused on uh, Jesus' rising popularity and their diminishing influence and therefore their tireless effort to capture and kill him. And we'll see the disciples who are also focused on Jesus' rising popularity, uh, their incredulity that any one of them would betray Jesus. We'll see that at the end of this morning's passage. And their incessant argument over who among them is the greatest. We'll see that at the front end of next week's passage. Also in these 23 verses, we'll see Jesus. And we'll see him in a couple of remarkable ways. First, we're gonna notice that while everything seems to be spinning out of control, Jesus is in total control. (laughs) Uh, In human terms, his ministry is unraveling. But in prophetic terms, Everything is unfolding as planned. Just as Isaiah said in anticipation of the Messiah's death, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief, Isaiah 53.10. And as Jesus would say shortly after his resurrection, wasn't it necessary for the Christ to suffer? Suffer these things and enter into his glory? So while the events in this passage appear to be out of control, we'll see that they're all under God's control. And that should be an encouragement to us in our out of control world. O'Haron's case in point. Second, we'll notice that while most everybody in this passage is entirely self-focused, Jesus is other-focused. Uh, The religious leaders and the disciples are so caught up in pursuing their self-interests here that each one, by the end of the book, is going to be guilty of either betraying or denying or killing Jesus. But Jesus will use their sins and those of a complicit world that includes uh, you and me to save them us from those very sins and every sin that we've ever committed. Jesus told the disciples that was going to happen. But as we'll see, they, they just never caught on. They never understood it in principle. So Jesus would show them in practice. Well, everyone in this passage was out for themselves. Jesus was out for them. He had their best in mind, even at his own expense, which would be very encouraging to all of us here who live in a me-first, at-any-cost kind of a world. So that's what we'll see this morning. Uh, Everything out of control, Jesus in control. Uh, Everyone self-focused, but for Jesus who is other-focused. And we're gonna see uh, all that through a series of progressive lenses. Uh, Lens number one, verses one through six, uh, the preface to the Last Supper. Lens number two, verses seven through 13, preparing for the Last Supper. And then finally, 14 through 23, partaking of the Last Supper. That was an alliteration I had to work at. So that's a way forward. Uh, this morning. So let's begin with verses 1 through 6 and the preface to the Last Supper. And first, what was happening among the religious leaders? And verse 2 tells us straight up they were seeking to put Jesus to death. Now, uh, as we've noticed in the book of Luke, this is something that had been occurring intermittently on the front end of his account, chapter 4, chapter 6, chapter 11. But now... The religious leaders are uh, uh, intensely and incessantly seeking to destroy Jesus, 1947, lay hands on Jesus, chapter 20, verse 19 and 20, and then right here in our passage, to kill him. Now, this was not a published initiative, uh, some kind of crusade, some a high-profile campaign with uh, wanted posters of Jesus up in every town. No, it it, it was a private resolve. It was a private resolve that came from the highest level of the religious establishment, straight out of the temple's west wing, uh, as it were. And and the second half of verse 2 tells us why the religious leaders wanted to keep this on, on the DL, to keep it quiet. It says, because they, they feared the people. Uh, they feared Jesus' growing popularity. We saw that in chapter 20, verse 19. And any of the blowback that they might get for impinging on that popularity. And so that's why, according to verse number six there, it says, they sought to hap- apprehend Jesus in the absence of a crowd. So that's what was happening among the religious leaders. How about the disciples? Well, we see there in verse number three, then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot. Uh, Not Judas Thaddeus, he was also uh, one of the disciples, but Judas Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. Uh, you'll recall Jesus had uh, a group of three disciples on whom he especially relied. We were introduced to them back in Luke 9. Then he had a group of over 70 disciples to whom we were introduced in uh, Luke 10. Judas was a member of the 12 select and trusted disciples who lived and served alongside Jesus. So uh, the kind of access that Judas had uh, to Jesus would raise no eyebrows. Sit next to Jesus here at the Last Supper, no surprise. Greet Jesus with a kiss in verses 47 and 48, raise no eyebrows. Judas had an in-person relationship with Jesus. Which leads to the question, how then could Satan enter into him? I mean, you think that if you had that kind of contact with Jesus himself, you'd heard it all, you'd seen it all, you'd ministered alongside of him. Well, Satan entered into Judas because Judas failed to follow at least two of Jesus' commands from the previous chapter. Number one, watch yourself. Watch yourself, verse number 34 there. And then second, second, Stay awake. Stay awake. Verse 36. Watch yourself. Stay awake. A thoughtless and prayerless attention to self, especially in the crucible, and that's exactly where Jesus and the disciples uh, were right here, is an open door for the adversary. Our spiritual life is just that, our spiritual life. It's not a matter of flesh and blood. It's not something that can be taken forward by sheer willpower or cunning. It, it's a spiritual thing. And that's why in James 4:7 we're told, resist the devil and he will flee. That's a spiritual measure. But Judas didn't resist Satan. Who prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, 1 Peter 5 8. So Satan didn't flee and had his way with Judas and through Judas. Now, quick a sidebar here on Satan, four quick things. Number one, uh, that name Satan means adversary or enemy or opponent. Uh, Number two, just because he's God's adversary doesn't mean he's God's equal. Uh, Satan is not all-knowing. He's not all-present. He's not all-powerful. Number three, because of his finitude, that means because Satan's limited, he'll probably never mess with any of us here in this room. We're all small potatoes. He has bigger fish to fry. And that's why fourth, this setting here is one of epic proportion because he's gonna stick his nose right into the middle of it. You'll recall on the front end of Jesus' ministry that um, the adversary tried to take down Jesus. You'll recall that out there in the wilderness. But he failed and it ended that account with these words. And the devil departed from Jesus until an opportune time. Well, on the back end of Jesus' ministry, here is that opportune time. It had come. And the murderous desire of the religious leaders along with the the covetous heart of Judas set the stage for a betrayal. And what happened between Judas and the religious leaders? Uh, You you see the mechanics of it there in verses 4 through 6. Let's take a look at it again. So Judas went away and he conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray Jesus to them. They were glad, they agreed to give him money. And so he he consented and sought an opportunity to betray Jesus to them in the absence of a crowd. I find this interaction rather remarkable. Um, It's not chaotic, there's no coercion here. Uh, Judas voluntarily approaches the religious leaders. They hear him out. They gladly agree to a plan. They even pay him for it. That which Judas could have done for free. But when Judas accepts the money to betray Jesus a a, a time and place such that they could quietly and secretly uh, take him away, thereby avoiding any public furor, well, his covetous colors were seen. So that's verses 1 through 6. That's that's the uh, preface to this whole thing at which we're looking this morning. So now let's take a look at verses 7 through 13 and the preparation for the meal. And one thing that's really helpful to know about the ancient Passover is that Jerusalem was a hectic place during that week. me. According to Deuteronomy chapter 16, the Passover meal was supposed to be eaten in the city of Jerusalem, which meant that people came from all points uh, down from the north, up from the east and west, up from the south, and packed themselves into that little place. Uh, one reliable estimate, 2.5 million pilgrims on that little hill on the south end of modern-day Jerusalem. It also meant that in that jam-packed Jerusalem, uh, pilgrims had to find a place to eat the Passover. And so residents were expected to uh, rent out rooms to those who were uh, traveling into town, kind of an ancient Airbnb, if you will. And then people had to prepare the meal. They had to buy the wine. They had to buy the bread. They had to buy the bitter herbs. And one of the quarter million lambs which were being sacrificed at the temple on the day before the feast. So it was a hectic scene. Passover time meant a lot of people, a lot of food, a lot of noise, hardly any room to turn around in the street. But in the midst of this pulsating mass of humanity, uh, bloodthirsty religious leaders, diabolical disciple, uh, one thing's certain: Jesus is in control. He's in control. He wouldn't let anyone or anything prevent him from fulfilling his desire, his earnest desire, according to verse 15, to eat the Passover meal with the disciples. And so. He was prepared. He was prepared, we're told that in verses 8, 9, 11, 13. Luke wants to make this a point, Jesus was prepared. He was even prepared for Judas' betrayal by sending Peter and John to arrange for the room, keep Judas from knowing uh, when and where that was going to take place and thereby uh, ensure that Jesus would have that time, that final time with his uh, disciples. So he sends them off, secret route and contacts along the way. And even though Jesus owned no no property in Jerusalem, in fact, I was thinking about this earlier. He was born in a borrowed room. He's going to have his last meal in a borrowed room. And we learned earlier in Luke that throughout his life, he had nowhere to lay his head. So talk about a pilgrim, Jesus was the consummate pilgrim. But he owned no property in Jerusalem, So, but he had arranged for this commodious, well-furnished uh, second floor room in which to gather and feast, a room which uh, no doubt included rugs on which to walk, comfortable cushions on which to uh, lie and enjoy their meal. So to be sure, Jesus, he's destined for persecution and death, but These are going to occur on his timetable, not anybody else's. So the the scholar Darrell Bach uh, succinctly and directly makes the point, Jesus is in control. David Garland, Jesus is in command. James Edwards, Jesus is supremely in charge. Jesus held it together while his world is just flying apart. And in the same way, he can hold you together while your world's flying apart. Just thinking about the account back in Luke 8, remember Jesus and the disciples are in the boat. They're going from the east end of the lake to the west. And they get to the middle of of the Sea of Galilee there, and the winds come down and it creates this storm that ends up swamping the boat. Uh, It's filling with what, it's going down is what's happening. And uh, Jesus is sleeping through this whole thing, which is uh, an expression of uh, uh, his fatigue. But the disciples are going out of their minds and they cry out, Master, Master, we're perishing. No hyperbole, they were. And what happens next? Jesus wakes up, he's rousted from his sleep. He he rebukes the wind and the waves such that the calm is uh, uh, proportional to the fury that had just moments before been all around them. And then he asks them this question. You, you remember what he asked them? Where's your faith? Um, don't you know who I am? Well, it was clear that they didn't <laughs> because they began asking each other, who is this guy, right? You, you, you remember that. Now, again, to be clear, these guys knew knew Jesus, lived with him, ate with him, worked with him, but did they really know him? Do you really know him? Do I really know him? I wonder if when Jesus asked, where is your faith? If he was implying yeah, okay, we were dying, but could you not have gone to the bottom and still been within the realm of my care? Jesus can hold you together while your world is flying apart. Because everything that's happening out of our control, even if it takes us to the bottom, occurs within the realm of of his. So, we've looked at the preface, the preparation. Now we're gonna consider the Last Supper itself. And the scene before us is a poignant one. Um, Because set before those in the upper room there on the table is the Passover meal. It's a meal that looks back on Israel's salvation from slavery as well as the high price at which uh, that occurred. And presiding over the meal is Jesus, who on this occasion, instead of looking back, looks ahead to a greater salvation, a salvation from sin, and presented himself as the price by which it would be secured. What had been done to the sacrificial lamb before them would soon be done to him. So it's a poignant moment to be sure. Now not only is this scene filled with poignancy, it's also filled, it's pulsating with pathos. And I I was talking to Kenny and Andrew about this er, earlier this week as I've been thinking about the two competing scenes that are occurring right here. Um, On on the one hand, there's there's Jesus, who's seated before the Paschal Lamb. Just hours before fulfilling the words of Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and a sheep that is before its shearer's Silent, so he opened not his mouth. Animals have no sense of self-awareness. Um, and he had a cattle that's being ushered down the chute at baker commodities over there in Vernon, you know, off the 7:10 by the L.A. River. Um, they, they have no idea what's before them. Even though there's death all around, their legs carry them in, but they exit in a variety of forms. But Jesus was entirely aware of what was before him. And it was gonna be far worse than what the lamb had undergone. At least the lamb went quick. Slice, little writhing, it's done. But Jesus was anticipating, and we see there in verse 15, that he was gonna suffer. He was gonna suffer by giving his body, verse 19, and his blood, verse 20, for those seated right there at the table, as well as those of us seated here this morning. And he would do so in a protracted manner, physically being pierced and crushed for our sins while in the process, and this was even worse than the the process of the physical death, while in the process, spiritually and emotionally, bearing our grief and carrying our sorrows and thereby bringing to us healing and peace with God. In the words of Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, the Lamb of God truly was there to take away the sins of the world. So again, on the one hand, you've got Jesus uh, here in this scene. And then, on the other hand, you've got the disciples. And they don't get any of this. I mean, it's going right over their heads. Jesus is doing for them and the world what nobody else could do. The greatest thing that has ever been done could be done. Jesus is doing that. and It's entirely lost on them. Instead, they're going to language in their incredulity. Uh, Jesus is, is going to say, You know, actually, one of you at the table here is going to betray me. And they're like, Really? What? I don't know which one of us is going to do? They see, we see that in verse 23. Pettiness, verse 24. Bravado, verse 38. Until they're finally overtaken by the sad reality of this whole thing in verse number 45. So. This is a scene that's filled with poignancy and pathos, but it's also a scene that's filled with power because Jesus is gonna let none of this stand in his way. Remember, he's in total control such that when the the others are entirely self-focused, he's others-focused. He's thinking of them. I'd have been done with these guys. I'd have told them where to go. And Jesus had the prerogative to do that. But he didn't, that's why I'm not Jesus. Because his mercy, we sang it this morning, his mercy's more. His love knew no bounds. Notice verse 15, it says, Jesus says to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. That that little bit there, earnestly desired, is an intensified, pair of words which could literally be rendered with desire, I desire to eat this Passover with you. It, it, it's, it's my great passion to do that. It's a way of saying, guys, I love you. Even Judas Iscariot, I love you. Proving the words of John 13, one, he loved them to the end. For another thing, Jesus' resolve knew no bounds. I mean, Passover looked back on what they all knew, uh, an historical uh, fact. But Jesus pointed them to something that only he could see, a a future reality. And that's why he says there in verses 16 and 18, you know, the next time we eat and drink like this, it's gonna be in the kingdom of God. But the gateway to that kingdom would be his death, represented by the bread. See there in verse 19, this is my body. In other words, this is, it, this is the real me, which is given for you. And the cup there in verse 20. This cup, which is my blood, that, that, that is my very life, is poured out for you. And by way of these things, Jesus establishes a new covenant thereby fulfilling the old one. And in particular, Jeremiah 31, which you gotta know is on Jesus' mind as he's saying these things. Listen to this portion of Jeremiah 31. The Lord says, I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, in other words, my people. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out of the land of Egypt, Symbolized by the meal before them, right? My covenant that they broke, declares the Lord. So the old covenant was breakable, and God's people broke it. The Lord continues, for this is the new covenant that I will make. I will put my law within them, I I will write it on their hearts, I will be their God, they shall be my people, and I will remember their sins no more. So the new covenant, like the old covenant, is one of law. But it's a law that's seated in the heart, and it's maintained by mutual fidelity. Uh, Notice there it says, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's an emphatic statement making it unbreakable. How many times have we broken that covenant? So it points to a future age beyond this one, the fickle and the tempestuous one in which we live. It, It points to the last age and the great supper of the Lamb when the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. So as we come to the table this morning, let's remember what it is to to which Jesus was pointing them and us here today. To be sure, these elements point backward, reminding us of what Jesus did when he gave his, his body, represented by the bread, and his life, represented by the cup, for our sins. In fact, two times over there, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. But these elements also point forward, reminding us to eagerly anticipate and regularly proclaim the destiny that was secured by these symbols. This meal is not an end in and of itself. It's not like a religious rabbit's foot or, uh, oh, I I did my duty. I I took communion this morning. No, this meal looks forward forward to the time beyond time. When, as the hymnist puts it, we shall be forever with the Lord. When disappointment, grief, and fear are gone, sorrow for God, love's purest joys restored. So, be still, my soul. When change and tears are past, all safe and, safe and blessed, we shall meet at last. And when we do, we're gonna meet as Jesus said, around a table on that great day. And I won't be presiding over it. Eric won't. Kenny won't. Rob won't. Dave Talley won't. Jesus will. And that's a day that we're looking forward to.